Short Reverse Show, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, uh, I'm I'm going alright, and yes, I'm, I'm thrilled that this week, uh, again, we get to talk about something we haven't talked about in a long time, which is Hollywood's ongoing sexual abuse scandals. Mmm, yes, the, the reckoning keeps reckoning. Reckoning? On. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, no, there's no real way to make reckoning even more of a verb than it already is but um yes uh this week harvey weinstein very much the the not the the first figure who kind of fell as part of the whole the, of the me too movement but certainly one of the the biggest kind of people to be taken down by it and certainly one of the the worst uh, at least that we know of so far mm. was uh you know handed himself into authorities in new york he was formally charged with uh, rape and sexual abuse and released on a million dollar bail because the justice system is fucking weird and broken and terrible. Mm-hmm. But that aside, uh, you know, the, 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 the terrible injustice of him being able to just pay a huge amount of money to walk out. It was, it, it, it you know, from the, certainly from the reaction of a lot of the people who have, you know, accused him of these terrible things, it seemed to be a very cathartic, moment that you know you can that you could clearly see people like Asia Argento and Rose McGowan coming forward and being able to say you know we we got you you know it all of this effort and you know speaking out against him and talking about the things that he has he has allegedly done um led to something that even a couple of years ago would have been you know unthinkable because of the the, the level of secrecy that surrounded his actions and the, the protection that his power in Hollywood seemed to afford him. Yeah. The idea that he was kind of a touch or untouchable or above the law. Yeah. But I suppose his kind of bail posting proves that he's above going to Rikers for seven years, like someone who had, you know, been accused of stealing a backpack and kind of held in custody and cause they couldn't afford bail has, is still in Rikers Island for seven, mm. seven years. And that kind of, yeah. yeah, like you say, points out the idea that the, American justice system is uh, broken and only really works for people who've got money to chuck around, um, yeah. which is not really how it should work, is it, really? Um, no. It should uh, kind of protect vulnerable people in society. Um, but it's not just Harvey Weinstein uh, who is uh, getting his comeuppance. It appears that Morgan Freeman, who, uh, you know, good old Morgan Freeman, who um, everyone, uh, you know, for years has held in such high esteem as everyone's kind of favourite granddad, is kind of everyone's pervy uncle by the sounds of it mm, yeah eight women came forward with accusations of sexual harassment from his uh, from him and you know some people said on on twitter that there have been whispers about him for quite some time so it was kind of strange to see people so shocked by it but i think that speaks to the the size of his you know his public persona you know the fact that people think of him as you know god basically like mm. literally because he's played god a bunch of times but also yeah, he has built such a, a career particularly since since Shawshank really of being the this kind of like wise fatherly or grandfatherly figure but yeah so that's that's a, a new story and we'll see how that that kind of develops uh, oh, he. Uh, in terms of uh, apologies and terrible apologies, 
Mm-hmm. Um, his might be up there with Kevin Spacey's I Was Gay at the Time and <laughs> uh, Louis C.K.'s um, Did I Mention I've Got a New Show Out? Um, or in- Mario Batali's Here's a Recipe. Here's a Recipe. Fucking bread or whatever. <laughs> yeah, where the Morgan Freeman was like, you know, he essentially should have just said, oh, it's just banter. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just like, you know, it was just a joke, uh, pulling a girl's skirt over her head. Uh, yeah. It was just a joke. Yeah, it's not though, is it, Morgan? You know what you were doing. Mm. And you, Alan Arkin uh, came out of it quite well, though, because I think one of the stories was that they were working on a film together. I think Going in Style, I think, was the one they were working together. I, I just all of Morgan Freeman's films now just blur into like one lame comedy about old people mm. uh, who are doing something kind of vaguely crime vaguely, related. Yeah, he's just fucking hell, you know. Uh, yeah. He's someone who seems to have got like a lot of goodwill towards him, even though the vast majority of the films he's in are fucking awful. Mm, yeah. He's not quite reached like the Pacino point where mm. there's like where there literally are like movies of his that will crop up on an on demand service. You're like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is like the twelfth cop movie he's made in three years. How is he cranking them out like this? <laughs> and everyone, like, but every, everyone is he reaches the point where everyone's like, we just want one good performance from him. Like, in most cases with Morgan Freeman, I think there's that sense of like, hey, he's still he's still watchable in him. It's just no, no one cares about any of these movies. But yeah, um, the the Alan Arkin thing was that they were working on that movie, and he was bothering like one of the production assistants or whatever. And Alan Arkin just basically told him to stop, stop fucking doing it. And mm. uh, he was kind of like, oh, it's nice that at least one person is willing to step up. But I guess it has to be someone who is of an equal position of power on the set for it to actually take effect, because you can't really imagine a production assistant standing up to. Morgan Freeman and saying, "Hey, please stop doing this." Because mm, especially when Morgan don't... Freeman owns a production company, that's the yeah. that's the kicker um, and the the ultimate kind of way you can uh, continually uh, get around abusing that power that you hold yeah. is to so own I, the means of production. It definitely points to the, the the power imbalance in Hollywood, which is at the the core of of all of these Me Too stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, in a story that will kind of lead into our main topic for this episode which is solo colon a star wars story <laughs> there it was announced that the uh that it wasn't the, announced that let's not get too excited it's just it's it's being oh, it's acknowledged that it's happening yeah that disney are pursuing a boba fett spin-off story directed by james mangold who previously most recently directed logan which was a, a very good movie and very kind of interesting take on the comic book story uh which gave a nice kind of send off to the character of wolverine and hugh jackman playing him and and in the past has directed a bunch of really cool interesting movies stuff like walk the line 310 to humor copland going back you know a, a mm. long a long time ago and he uh, you know he's he's attached or he's pursuing it uh whether or not this ends up happening you know probably is something we can get into in our main topic but it certainly seems to point to Lucasfilm and Disney really pursuing any name character at this point to try and fill in the gaps between main Star Wars installments. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, Boba Fett is a character that looks cool, but is actually shit. Mm. And... Like the the idea of perhaps fleshing him out as a character, giving him his own story, 
highlights the problem that, well, the the, the mistake people seem to make when they think about world building. Mm. World building is not in detail listing everything about the world that is like the 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 the, the fictional characters inhabit. World building is suggesting enough through design and other cool creative choices that makes you think the world is enormous and there is much more detail to it than there actually is. Mm. And that is the mistake that people make. They look at a character like Boba Fett, who, you know, has got really cool armor. He says a couple of light lines, like in the, the movies, which kind of sound cool and threatening. He flies a cool ship. He performs a plot function. And then he leans against the wall and falls down a hole. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. He is only there to serve the function of the plot in the Empire Strikes Back. And then they have him as a adversary who goes down terribly in... He's accidentally hit down a hole by a blind man <laughs> uh, with a <laughs> stick. That's what happens to Boba Fett. He is not a character that demands kind of any more depth. He's not even when we're told his backstory as as a as a young man we know he's a a clone of his mm. dad and you know the only thing that drives him is revenge of a jedi that cut his head off who's already dead yeah uh so what is what what do we need we didn't need the 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 kind of crowbarred boba fett jango fett story into the prequels that didn't add anything to the story of Boba Fett, this mysterious bounty hunter. And that's what's cool about him. He's mysterious. You don't know about him. When you start filling in the blanks, then all of a sudden it's not interesting. Yeah. So, Although, it's, it, and but like, I would say that, that um, I will let you interject here, Ed, before okay. I stop talking about uh, Star Wars, <laughs> uh, that, um, you know, James Mangold, that's a really great, like, twinning of material and director. But it's, like we've said this a million times, it's just another fucking white dude. Hmm. And yeah. Luke, Lucasfilm's words about you know bringing different voices to the universe is just ringing hollower and hollower. Is that's not even a word? Is it hollower? More and more hollow uh, <laughs> by the by the announcement, which is if, if if it hasn't been announced about James Mangold, but it also hasn't been announced about Kenobi and Stephen Doldry, but they are accepted as facts uh, that these things are happening and are in production. And yeah, it's it's just it's just not a good look for a company that is attempting to push quite rightly. So uh, the idea of bringing lots of different voices and viewpoints and worldviews into what is a rich fictional universe and just to continually keep falling on just the same type of director is very frustrating. Mm. But I think we can all agree it's going to be very exciting when, teenage Boba Fett just like falls into a big hole and there's kind of like a a winking nudge reference to how he ends up dying because that's what we all like we all like in jokes and references to things that haven't happened yet Mm. that's what movies are about yeah I mean the thing is the the other alternative is to do something out of left field like Boba Fett falls down a hole everyone who saw it is dead right Mm. let's just think about that like this uh, Jabba sail barge blows up and the only people who witnessed Boba Fett dying uh, are the heroes who carry on. Han Solo's now dead. Mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker's now dead. Chewie's still going and Lando's knocking about still. 
but they they really weren't that bothered. So the the story could be a comedy about a man who pretends to be Boba Fett and just walks around not saying anything to try and blend in, but mm-hmm. like he's just like a, just a nomark who just carries on. But then that's not an interesting film. That's a vaguely funny premise. Yeah. Or they could do, uh, and you know, to go back to my youth of reading Star Wars expanded universe novels, they could do what the Tales from Jabba's Palace books did, where they talk about how where the whole story is about him being trapped in the Sarlacc pit, where he is going to be digested over a thousand years, as they say, and he gradually escapes. You know, you could just make it this story set in a single space where you know the intestines of a giant space monster worm. <laughs> Yeah. And him kind of like, you make it like 127 hours, basically. That's what, what the Boba Fett movie is going to be. It's going to be like 127 hours. It's going to cost like $10 million because it's just one set. And it's all about him kind of slowly going mad, talking to the other people being digested by the Sarlacc and eventually escaping triumphantly. Yeah, let David Lynch direct it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, yeah, if if Mangold's going to do it, he'll release a black and white version as well. Yep. Like a grittier black and white version, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm into it. But I think, just joking aside, there's really no good way of doing this, is there? No, there's not, not a obvious. lot. There's not a lot to that character initially. Like you say, he's just a cool costume and a character who is cool for about half an hour of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And then when he shows up in Return of the Jedi, you think, oh, yeah, that guy, he's back. Something cool is going to go down. And then... Yeah, it, well, what goes down is him. <laughs> That's exactly what happens, is he dies a clown's death. Of mm-hmm. A slapstick d- death. Yeah, uh, one of the many... Um, yeah, we, we talked at length of this on, a, on an episode like years and years ago about how the opening to Return of the Jedi makes little narrative sense and tonally is all over the place. But yeah, his the, the way he is treated doesn't exactly augur great things for what you could do with that character. Mm. Like, I, I, I'll tell you something that I learned very recently. There's uh, an author called Chuck Wendig who wrote the the Star Wars. He's wrote a bunch of young adult movie, uh, books, mm-hmm. and he uh, wrote the Aftermath trilogy of Star Wars books, which are very readable. They're they're not amazing, but there's some, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, set immediately after Return of the Jedi, but he said that one of the kind of running jokes and things that happens at Lucasfilm is everyone has to have a turn trying to explain what the plan was at Return of the Jedi. <laughs> and they had, they were like, well, there's someone, I think it might be Chuck Wendig actually did like an hour presentation of like what the, what the actual thinking was behind the heist. Mm. Uh, and, and even, and even though every step fails, it's all a completely planned uh, failure with all these kind of safety nets in place, which all trigger mm. when each thing goes wrong. And it, it was kind of funny that, like, you know, everyone at Lucasfilm realizes yeah. that, that some of the clumsiest, stupidest writing in Star Wars, and that it's fun to kind of try and unpick what on earth anyone was thinking when they came up with it. Yeah, it's their plan is like the Titanic of escapes. There's like eleven <laughs> layers of defense to it. And like if the if if a twelfth thing had gone wrong, they would have all died. Yeah. But they 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 had just enough protection in there. But I guess that that whole thing ties into Lucas's love of pulp storytelling. I guess you know the yeah. fact that he he's just telling this breathless story, and a lot of those like Flash Gordon serials or whatever the stuff that he was really influenced by, they don't really stand up to much scrutiny in the aftermath. It's more a case of like okay, we've got. 
10 minutes to fill. Let's just kind of come up with a bunch of stuff that happens. And uh, I think that the opening of Return of the Jedi works on that level, but in terms of like grand myth-making storytelling is one of those things where you, you watch them and you think, okay, so I guess they were expecting to for Luke to fall into this trap door that no one seemed to know was there, at least not ahead of time, and kill the, kill the Rancor, uh, and then also then not be killed instantly for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are a lot of like there are a lot of uh, extenuating factors that they apparently were very good at accounting for. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as I said, our main topic this week is Solo: A Star Wars Story, the second anthology film in the new Disney produced Star Wars series of movies. In between the main episodes, this one focuses surprisingly enough on the character of Han Solo. This time played by Alden Ehrenreich. And uh, it essentially explains all the important things you want to know about him, where he got his dice from, why his <laughs> dice are very important, what where he puts them in his ships. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of dice-related content in this movie, which I was not expecting going into, but also things like how he meets Chewbacca, where he gets the Millennium Falcon from, how he meets Lando for the first time, his background, all this sort of stuff. So, Matt, I think you and I, based on our letterbox reviews of this movie, kind of have, I think we're in a very similar area on how we feel about this movie uh, I'll, I'll let you have the floor first in talking about you know what you think about solo a star wars story yeah i thought it was absolutely fine mm. it was it was exactly the kind of film that you would expect to get when you replace the directors after 70 percent of the film is shot mm-hmm. it is a coherent film uh yeah. set in the star wars universe featuring a familiar series of scenes edited together in an order that you can follow easily. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are there are Star Warsy things in it. There are bits that feel like they are very heavily borrowed from Firefly. Yeah, um, my, which, my joke which, on it was uh, good of Disney to put three episodes of Firefly into theatres. Yeah, it's about accurate. And, it, you know, Firefly is a show that very heavily leans on the Han Solo character and tropes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was... Um, watchable. It was kind of enjoyable. I felt like the first half an hour was was very sluggish out of the gate. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of very poor decisions in the in the opening half an hour, which kind of pegged it back a lot. Um, yeah. Before we go into those, probably say spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> I mean, we've um, already revealed all the characters that die in the subs- in the other Star Wars movies. So sorry to be yeah, who haven't seen the Last yeah. Jedi. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. But the last half an hour, the film seemed to peter out mm. rather than end with some kind of climactic... Well, a climax, that would be nice. And it all serves to reiterate the point of we didn't need this film. We have got a watchable, kind of enjoyable movie out of it, but kind of would we have really lost anything if they hadn't made the film at all? Mm. There are there is a lot to like in the movie, and there's plenty not to like in the film. But as all in all, I, I mean, I think it's the worst Star Wars movie, not counting any of the prequels, the other prequels. I mean, the uh, the prequel trilogy because they are on they're on a whole other level mm. um, of awfulness. But um, and th- this is something that I've come to realize since leaving the cinema that we we now need to stop thinking about Star Wars like a bunch of really good films that are together that are set in the same universe. We are now looking at a 
unwieldy franchise, very much in the the vein of Marvel. And if this is as bad as it's going to get, then that's kind of all right. Mm. We need to stop thinking of every Star Wars film as this kind of precious thing that's going to add to the mythos. There's, you know, they're going to be churning these out, and you know, there's going to be what you know. This is better than Iron Man two or Incredible Hulk or Doctor Strange. So, in t- like that, I'm not that worried about it. But yeah, I mean, without going into specifics, that's generally how I felt about the film. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm of a similar point of view. I, I certainly walked in I, uh, with moderately moderate expectations, and they were met. Mm-hmm. Some parts of it surpassed them. Um, I was I particularly liked the train sequence, which is kind of the big mm-hmm. set piece of the movie. Uh, interestingly enough, happens like a third of the way in. Yeah. Which uh, I think would be fine if there were more like character moments in the movie, more sense of like characters, character development, but it's paced in such a way where it's literally like set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece, end. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's not much in the way of, of really kind of building the relationships with these characters all barreling along and that. Yeah, there is a certain sense of, of fun to that, but it also it's a little bit wearying not having moments that really kind of build or for me that I didn't feel they really built or informed the character of Han in any kind of meaningful way from what we've seen in the other movies. I also think that, and I, I joked about it earlier, I think it suffers from, it falls into the pit that a lot of prequels do, which is answering a lot of questions that no one was asking chief of which being what's the deal with the dice which i wondered if all the shots of the dice were added in after people asked about the significance of it from the last jedi Mm. because they they're not a huge part of the last jedi but there is that sense of like luke handing leia the dice is a very significant thing that happens, but it's something that, like, if you don't remember that those dice are in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars A New Hope and not in the subsequent ones because they forgot to put them in, yeah. then it's kind they, then it's kind of like a weird thing where you get from the scene, all right, these are important. I guess these belong to Han, but I don't really remember them. Whereas this movie, it, it really does feel like they made this thinking, okay, when people watch these movies in chronological order then the dice will make sense in The Last Jedi. It was a very weird thing that there were like seven or eight shots of them throughout the whole movie. Uh, you kind of made me wonder if at least like three of them ratted in after after January. Mm, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help that there's actually a deleted scene from The Force Awakens mm. where Han Solo goes into the Falcon for the first time in a long time and he hangs the dice up. Oh. Hangs the dice up where they're seen in uh, A New Hope. Mm-hmm. And that that scene being, I mean, it's a nice sort of character scene because um, it's obviously the first time he's been in the cockpit uh, of that ship for, you know, 30-odd years in the universe. But obviously there's no need for the scene. It's just a yeah. nice character beat that doesn't progress the story or the, the plot on at that moment. So they cut it, and it that kind of doesn't help The Last Jedi. I think we'd probably not... We probably, probably wouldn't be having this conversation as much it wouldn't be it wouldn't be stick out as much like it does because they really do go heavy on the dice yeah but also there are things like you know i don't think anyone in history has ever asked how did han solo get his name it's like 
we just assumed that was his name. Uh, we didn't think, you know, there was never that sense of like, oh, what we need to see is that, oh, he got it like in the Star Wars equivalent of getting off the boat in Ellis Island, where where someone says, where he says, oh, I don't really have anyone. It's like Han Solo from a witty um, Imperial recruitment officer who thinks that he's, you know, he's got a, a fine sense of uh, his own sense of humour. Mm. There's like lots of little things like that where you think, I never really wondered that. It just seems really strange that you would decide to add that little bit to the law, which doesn't really add anything. It just or it just kind of makes the character a little less mysterious. Like that being his name always seemed like cool. Like his actual name seemed quite cool. And again, in the the legend stuff that doesn't exist anymore, like there's this whole thing about the so, uh, the Sal Solos who are his kind of rich politically connected um cousins you know the sackville bagginses of the star wars universe who are always causing trouble for him certainly once he kind of rises in the in the new republic and things like that but yeah the idea that it it was a name that was just given to him by someone else it kind of feels like a a, a weird off-kilter choice to make Mm. and that that's kind of indicative of a lot of the small storytelling moments in the movie they just feel a little off and like they're sketching in details that were best left blank mm. that was the only bit of the film in which i rolled my eyes um <laughs> because and the thing is like i'd never thought about how han solo got his name you, you just think it's his you know it's a cool name it's one of the coolest names you can have yeah han solo if they were going to do that, they, you know, they could have just done it with like, "What's your name? Who you're traveling with?" and just with a tiny like look, a kind of very subtle bit of acting from Old Nerenreich, he could have just said Han Solo, and mm-hmm. you would get the idea that he was perhaps in control of his name. That perhaps you know, yeah. perhaps it wasn't his name, and he he came up with that to get through. That would be part of his story getting through. And that moment which set him off on his journey, kind of being, you know, separated from uh, Amelia Clark's uh, character. Um, Trying to define of, himself yes, instead of having the having name some him. fucking yeah. bureaucrat come up with it <laughs> is, you know, just very, very, very stupid and a very, very poor decision. Yeah. What uh, other kind of things from the first half hour like really rankled you? Because I do think it's the weakest segment of the movie, mainly because, you know, it's all on Corellia and it's all about how uh, Han had grown up in this kind of like vaguely Dickensian life, you know, with where Fagin is a slug played by Linda Hunt. Mm. And, you know, like where he and, and, and Kira, the Amelia Clark character, have stolen a vial of coaxium, which is a kind of this hugely important MacGuffin, you know, this this space fuel that forms uh, an important part of the, the whole Kessel run and everything later in the movie. And that's how they are planning to escape and they get separated and Han vows to return. What were the other kind of, uh, you know, for me, like that whole sequence was there was some fun stuff in there, but also it did seem to be a lot of just driving through factories that could be like in Birmingham or something. Yeah. I, I did like the inclusion of Corellia cause it's a, it's a, it's a, a world that has always been mentioned in Star Wars and, mm. and the idea that it was... I think it used to be defined as like a kind of 
uh, a place where they made ships, but not yeah. necessarily an industrial empirical shipyard which was there was some cool shots of like when they looked up in the streets and there's the big star destroyers being kind of mm. put together because and that was kind of cool but the biggest thing and also like uh, for people who kind of like deep extended universe cuts uh finally canonizing like coronet city as the capital of corellia um, right it's yeah. quite nice just like little bits like that because you know people care about that kind of thing but the, my biggest problem was the treatment of Thandie Newton's character, Val. Oh, yeah. They they did her pretty rough. Yeah. So you've got what appears to be a very cliched ragtag bunch of outlaws. Mm. We have seen, and, and I have to say, I did read this. These, these are kind of some of my own thoughts crystallized with a blog I read somewhere on somewhere, but I cannot remember where it was, but these aren't all my own thoughts. Um, the idea that we have seen the Woody Harrelson character enough times. Yeah. We have seen that character played by Woody Harrelson <laughs> enough times, <laughs> that kind of gruff mentor type. You have got for the first time a woman of color playing a prominent role in a Star Wars movie and she is seemingly disposed of for purposes of plot. Uh, she she dies a kind of, you know, she sacrifices herself for the good of the job. But it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem altogether, like, worth even introducing her as a character if you're just going to do that. Because, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't drive Woody Harrelson's character on for any other purpose other than the next scene where he punches Han Solo in the face and then forgives him after five minutes. And yeah. we... You know, it wouldn't have made it would. Uh, sorry, it would have made a huge difference on one level if uh, they would have flipped the the mentor character to being the Thandie Newton character. Mm. It wouldn't have made a difference to the film we saw, but it would have made a huge difference in terms of not just retreading a lot of those same tropes. And yeah. it feels like, and this is something. This is this is kind of my own theory. Uh, Thandie Newton said that the majority of her work that ended up in the film was um, Lord and Miller stuff. Okay. So I think her part was substantially cut down mm. because I'm because Michael K. Williams was famously in this movie playing a half man, yeah. half puma and <laughs> couldn't couldn't come back for it because he was committed to something else. Everyone else could come back to it to varying degrees. I don't mm. think Thandie Newton could have come could, uh, could make it back for enough of the film to perhaps fix what was wrong there. And yeah. as a result, her character is shortchanged uh, to a ridiculous degree to the point where you almost feel like they could have just done the film without her and it wouldn't have made a difference, which is not what you should be doing with those characters. Yeah, especially because like that whole crew who are introduced also the John Favreau multi-limbed alien character Mm-hmm. who is also introduced just to die, but you can kind of see that coming a mile off yeah. anyway. But that whole crew, they are just well-established enough that they, they're on screen a lot, but not so established that you feel much of an emotional connection to them so that their deaths mean much of anything. Like, you either need to... Like, like presumably they were a bigger part of the original version of the movie, but they either needed to be in it more so that their deaths kind of mean something and you get a sense that they have helped shape Han and Chewie a little bit more or, or have kind of really helped affect their relationship and their indoctrination to this kind of bigger universe of crime. Or 
you needed to do a MacGruber and they were ascend they are assembled and die within the first like five minutes. Mm. And it's kind of like, oh, I guess Han and Chewie are on their own now and they're in the real they're in some real deep shit. Um like it really didn't feel as if it felt kind of awkward, even though they are part of, like I say, the, the train heist sequence, which is is easily one of the best action move uh, action scenes of the movie, and one of the best action sequences in uh, sustained action sequences in in all of Star Wars. I would say mm-hmm. it really doesn't feel as if they contribute all that much to the movie as currently conceived. Yeah, it it almost feels like the train heist should have been the third act. Mm, you know, yeah. you've got to know these this kind of crew of uh, reprobates. Um, they've all worked together to try and, and they, you know, they, for some reason they need Han and Chewie to do the job and they're slowly accepted and then all of a sudden these kind of people that Han and Chewie thought would get them through the job, these kind of slick career criminals, uh, all kind of die one by one. We'd feel more of an emotional connection to those characters. We'd feel more invested in the story and then all of a sudden we'd be like, oh, shit. Han and Chewie are on their own and mm. would be kind of left to answer for everything. But I mean, that's, you know, structurally, the film felt very uneven. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a kind of the, the biggest highlighter of that. Because um, it is a very cool sequence. It's kind of like big, like it is exactly the the, the robbery from Firefly. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, done on a, like a very cool kind of like monorail that kind of goes upside down and, and kind of round corners and stuff, which is pretty cool. So they have a lot of fun with the physics of that and trying to rob it in motion. It's like a slightly less crazy Snowpiercer. Yes, yes. And... You know, when Emphis Nest and the, the, the Cloud Rider gang turn up, it kind of adds a bit more to it. But, I mean, that could have been, like, hinted at and, and kind of, like, brought in, and then all of a sudden, you know, it kind of builds to something, whereas the, the film didn't feel like it built to anything, um, mm. which is, you know, kind of a kind of a shame, really. I, I would say well, one of the main things kind of I want to get into is Lord and Miller were fired um, having... And we're getting lots and lots of detail about it now, uh, nearer to the film. There was a big piece in Variety, which seemed to be probably the most accurate version of what probably happened, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, they were hired to direct this movie. They were doing lots and lots of improvisational stuff, which took it too far away from the script that Lawrence Kasdan and his son, John Kasdan had written. Mm -hmm. And they were taking too long. Now, the first thing is a, you know, that's a total creative uh, difference. The second thing is a practical difference, which people don't appreciate because on a film the size of Star Wars, every minute you waste is costing hundreds of thousands of dollars because you've got all these people stood around. And in the eyes of Lucasfilm and in the eyes of the people who are making the film, they thought that Lord and Miller were wasting too much time and the, the quality of the footage they're getting back wasn't right and it was moving too far away from the script. Now... If Ron Howard was brought on to write the ship and move the film back towards what the script was and intended, and I believe that Ron Howard probably took some out, probably made the job a bit easier for himself by simplifying it some somewhat and and kind of stripping stripping what was to be done back, still reshot eighty percent of the movie, and from what we're led to believe, in accordance to what uh, Lawrence Kasdan and John Kasdan wanted from their script. Now, all those things we can accept to be true. If that is true, mm-hmm. then why on earth did they hire Lord and Miller to direct that script? 
because it's not yeah. funny. Mm. Yeah, it's there's occasional moments where there's kind of like some funny stuff, like when Han and Chewie first meet, and Han is dropped into this pit where the Empire have basically been feeding people to Chewbacca mm-hmm. um, as yeah, you know, because he's a he's a prisoner there, and Han speaks Wookiee to him, which feels like a Lord and Miller uh, sequence, like something they were coming of him, like badly speaking Wookiee with like subtitles that clearly come up with like you know he's talking in the wrong tense and things like that. But he comes up with a plan, which is to basically have Chewbacca pretend to be beating him up when in fact knocking out the support structure that then allows them to escape, mm-hmm. and that. That sort of stuff is is quite funny and is quite well done. And I think there's a they get a lot of they get a lot of comedy out of Chewbacca just because you know there is something fundamentally quite funny about having a largely quite friendly but actually very powerful and violent kind of dog monster thing running around. But yeah, it, it definitely feels like the the, the 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 material and the directors were definitely misaligned if mm. the script that was eventually shot was what they were hired to do or you know if there was no cuz cuz it seems like they must have gone in thinking okay this is a great opportunity for us to direct a Star Wars movie and you would presume that the people at at, at Lucasfilm would have had them they they must have had some conversation saying like can we kind of mess around with it mm. can we play with this script and kind of maybe do our own thing because that's what we like to do because it seems like a pretty big leap for them to take without some sort of assurances from Lucasfilm to say okay we're going to just kind of like improvise and kind of like mess around on set if they thought that that was going to if they didn't think that was going to get some sort of pushback mm. and like that someone must have said to them that's fine and then they just like took it too far because they you know were overwhelmed or they just kind of believed in their own ability to make it work more than the people at Lucasfilm did. Mm. And it's weird because the only like Lord and Miller and, and, and Kathleen Kennedy aren't interviewed in that variety piece. Mm. Um, but there is a source close to um, Lord and Miller, which said that they wanted to take risks with it and were, allowed to do that but every time they tried something it was pushed back on which Mm. seems to me that like it was just a total mismatch of director and material because why would you hire those guys and not let them take risks um to direct a script which doesn't seem to suit their you know their kind of outlook on film so you know it, it just seems to have been a bad decision uh, they mm. ended up costing Lucasfilm, you know, twice their budget. Yeah. You may as well have just got Ron Howard into direct in the first place. If you're just going to say, well, we want exactly what's written down, why would you choose two people known for, you know, weird, very strange at times, um, and also incredibly silly, um, uh, but also very clever improvisational comedies, pulling kind of very visually inventive gags out of nowhere to direct mm. to exactly follow a script that you've written, which isn't funny. Yeah. Although I guess it, it kind of points to the bind and then people have also talked about this in, in terms of the, the broader problem that Lucasfilm has, which is the, you know, 
you and I, and also like lots of other people, are always kind of getting on them for making safe choices in their decisions and who they hire to direct these movies and sticking to like middle-aged white guys to direct them. But, you know, the one time that they chose a directing team who were outside of the, the what you would think of as the usual choices to direct the movie, it clearly backfired. So it kind of, they, they are in sort of a damned if you do sort of thing where they did take a big risk in hiring Lord and Miller and it completely didn't pan out for them. Mm, so yeah. it, it and and you know the fact that they still have a movie out of it and it is a movie that like you say feels coherent and cohesive and you know makes sense on a plot point of view i certainly think it's a little more clear in its plotting than rogue one which i think uh is a, is a very fun enjoyable film as well but one where a lot of the kind of the pieces of that story you can see the seams in that movie a lot mm. more than you can see the ones in this one like yeah i think because that one they reshot a lot of it, but not enough to kind of completely restructure the whole movie. Whereas this one, it's such a total reshoot that it's essentially like a single cohesive movie in a way that that one kind of doesn't doesn't quite feel the same. Mm. Yeah, and I mean that is that is the single biggest compliment I can give the film. Uh, whilst there is a lot to like about it, and hopefully we'll get into some of that now, mm-hmm. um, the biggest compliment that you can pay the film and pay Ron Howard in particular is they really did do an amazing job of pulling that out of the bag because Mm. just coming on and, and, you know, reshooting the entire film pretty much. They, I think the variety have said, and this is, this, this is, this is the the number that I believe Ron Howard reshots 70% of the film plus 10% of second unit stuff was reshot. So that's 20% of Lord and Miller's stuff is left. That is absurd. And they did it in four months um, with like minimal prep time and just turned up and did it. The fact that he did that and made something that was watchable, coherent and not awful is quite an achievement. Like it's better than a lot of his, films, his actual films that he's had a lot of time to plan. Mm-hmm. Um that that you know he he really cannot be commended enough for uh, for pulling that one out of the bag. Yeah, it certainly speaks to him as like a just a commensurate professional and steady hand mm. uh, that he came into a very difficult situation for everyone involved and provided stability and guidance and got the thing done. Now the movie that we got is probably, I mean, whether or not it's better or worse the movie that we would have got is probably less interesting than the movie that we would have got but Mm -hmm. it's i think towards the upper end of the best case scenario of what you would have expected coming out of you know certainly like in in us covering the various travails of that movie over the last two years and the stuff that's gone on behind the scenes you uh, this is kind of like a really good example and we talked about this when we did an episode all about trouble productions a few years ago like how difficult a production is is never not really all that indicative of how good the final product would be. And I think this is a good indication of that because this had one of the most turbulent productions, certainly in terms of like on a movie of this scale in recent memory, and it turned out okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's is that good because you know, we got something out of it or are we always going to be thinking, you know, we could have perhaps had something that was a more interesting failure. Would you rather have like an average film or an interesting failure? 
I think in most cases I would rather have an interesting failure because it's. I think it's more fun to pick over those things and to kind mm. of look at it and see. Like the, the example I always look at is something like M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, mm-hmm. which is not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's so... There's so many interesting choices going into it, like the idea of trying to make a horror movie that's shot pretty much entirely in bright daylight and where the places of safety are like inside scary houses. It has all of these things where you think intellectually, this is trying to do something very interesting with a horror concept and it is failing spectacularly at all of the choices <laughs> that it is making. But that is, that's kind of interesting to consider in a way that like a just kind of mediocre, straightforward horror movie isn't, even though the mediocre horror movie is probably more conventionally enjoyable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I suppose you're right. What did we like about the Han Solo movie, Ed? I, I'd like to say, I think the high sequence is very good. I think they did a good job with the whole Kessel Run sequence. Less so the actual run itself, like the escape from Kessel, which was mainly just them flying through fog, mm-hmm. <laughs> space fog. Uh, although I did think it was very cool when suddenly it just decided to become a Cloverfield movie. Um they did it again yeah. as another secret Cloverfield. Uh, no, but where they fly through and they encounter just kind of like this massive Lovecraftian horror who gets sucked into, which they trick into getting sucked into a gravity well and then they like escape at the last moment. That was all, that was pretty cool, but it also wasn't, it was again kind of explaining a thing that didn't necessarily need to be explained. Like it's essentially squaring uh, squaring away a fuck up on George Lucas's part 40 years ago where he said parsecs because he thought it meant time as opposed to distance. Mm-hmm. Um, explaining like, oh no, like it's because they took a shortcut. And it's like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But like the whole thing of them getting onto Kessel, which is this like mining planet, pretending to be slaves, causing a robot rebellion, you know, all that stuff was fun. But mainly the things that stood out to me were some of the performances. I thought Alden Ehrenreich was terrific as Han Solo. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he was good at being the kind of still forming version of the character, a character who is putting on that sense of bravado, but not really carrying it off, uh, which is fitting because he's like a younger actor taking on this role. Um, Lando, uh, uh, Lando, (laughs) uh, uh, Donald Glover was great as Lando uh at suggesting billy d williams without just impersonating him and i i really really enjoyed phoebe waller bridge as l337 who was very funny in like just everything she was doing about robot liberation but also uh managed to sneak some fairly dirty jokes into her dialogue which i appreciated (laughs) Yeah, so we now know that the clitoris exists in the Star Wars universe and yeah. that Clint Howard doesn't know where it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> which, the joke, which, you know, you know, sneaking that into a PG-13 movie, I have to take my hat off to her. Yeah, so uh, I think a lot, a lot of the performances... Yeah, like, and also in terms of like the minor characters, I thought there were there were a lot of bunch a bunch of people just showing up and doing kind of like good, fun work. Paul Bettany, I thought, wasn't... Like they didn't use him enough for him to really make that much of an impression, but I did like him as a overly friendly villain. Mm-hmm. Like just the way he was constantly just asking people how they were and things like that. I thought if we had more of him, that you know, the the the, the villain may have 
functioned better, but what we saw of him was pretty good. And it was nice to see him playing a dastardly character after seeing him play Vision, where he's a little more... And Jarvis, where he's obviously, just by the nature of that character, a little kind of drabber and, and more bland. Mm. It's... I agree with you. Uh, I, you know, thought that Billy... Uh, sorry, that um, <laughs> Donald Glover was great as Lando, but the idea that some people are suggesting that he steals the film is crazy because he's not really in it. Uh, no, he brightens it up yeah. every time he's on screen. I mean, just because of his wardrobe. And yeah, he literally brightens it up. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think he, he was great in the film. The idea that, that uh, all of a sudden you know, we're going to see a whole lot of spin-offs just focusing around Lando based on that film is kind of crazy because <laughs> there's still not much more to his character <laughs> uh, than we know from Empire Strikes Back. As enjoyable as I as it was, especially, um, you know, watching him recount his memoirs, um, <laughs> which is, yeah, whilst other more important things are happening, uh, which mm. funny. I, yeah, I did like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, I felt like... And I really, really, it kind of pains me to say this, but Amelia Clark just isn't a particularly strong actor. I don't mm, think I've, yeah, I've never she was, really seen yeah. her impose herself on a role. Even, you know, in Game of Thrones, I, I still think she's she's not one of the strongest members of the cast. And mm. when I read who else kind of tested for the part of Kira, including... Tessa Thompson, um, Zoe oh. Kravitz, like perhaps slightly more interesting actors who could have done a bit more with that role because they mm. really lean heavily on it being the femme fatale, but then it just turned out not to be. And, you know, we just yeah. got her back in the story by coincidence and, you know, we had things hinted at that she, you know, was into a life of servitude to this kind of criminal gang, but we never really got into that. Um, mm. we could have done and then you know it got a little bit interesting at the end where she clearly now is in charge of the um crimson dawn uh criminal syndicate but yeah she really kylo rends it yeah but she we we don't like the idea that that is a thing that i'm that we might see in another sequel to this movie is not something i'm hugely excited about it's not like oh you know the character was really strong we can see them try and face off against her in the future it didn't really inspire much by way of excitement uh in that character i don't know whether it was just the character or the performance or you know the unholy union of both um yeah but it, i think it, it was a little flat yeah i think i don't think she's necessarily the worst performance in the movie like i think I think like John Favreau voicing whatever character he plays, uh, he's he's not like bad. It's just like a total mismatch between voice and character. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel organic to the world or the story that he talks that way, and it does feel so much like a voiceover performance. Like it doesn't feel, you know, compare that to like Andy Serkis playing snoke in the other movies it's like okay yeah i believe that that voice is coming out of that character it feels organic to this scene whereas that one is like oh that cgi animal uh, creature is moving its mouth and john favreau's voice is coming out of it. it doesn't really feel mm. like it's part of the world as it's happening so but but i think she is her performance is like the most damaging because she's in so much of the movie and her relationship to han is his is his inciting instant is his motivation to try and get back to her 
her um him trying to like take her away from Crimson Dawn is like a big part of the second and third acts of the movie and because she and Alden Ehrenreich don't really have any chemistry at all mm. it really does feel like those emotional beats fall very very flat and it's not for one of trying like they are trying very much to kind of give the sense that she is his kind of this great lost love and that her leaving him at the end is is one of the things that maybe hardens him as a person into becoming the character that he then becomes it just it it, it all just doesn't feel real to me it, it kind of felt theoretical and some like something that made sense in the abstract but you don't really feel the emotions of on screen mm, yeah i i suppose um oh, just to touch again on olden Ehrenreich, i i really thought he was great and i kind of thought because in the trailers they don't really lean that heavily on his delivery of lines and his performance mm. they don't make him that central to the trailer especially the first couple of trailers so yeah. that didn't really inspire a lot of confidence but he really is very assured in the role and really does hammer home that he's playing Han Solo and not Harrison Ford um yeah. with real and, and like you know after a couple of scenes you're totally on board with it i i i think he could have been uh, he, there, there's a lot more moments where his like perhaps jokes didn't land as well, um, mm. and I don't know whether that was, you know, that was some of the problems that some of the comedy that had been done fell a bit flat and it didn't really work. But yeah, I th- I, I I felt like all the performances, all the casting and everything was excellent. I did think that Paul Bettany was really cool. I would much rather have seen Michael K. Williams playing half man, yeah. half humor, um, mm-hmm. but you know, Bettany's you know was brought in as like a trusted person who could get the job done in a few days and he really did sell that idea i liked his makeup as well which seemed to get redder and redder as he got angrier and angrier which was yeah uh, a nice touch but i suppose perhaps we uh just one last thing before we get into uh we want need to talk about uh, a certain plot reveal which will have Mm. a lot of the people listening to this really confused uh, and some people who saw it incredibly confused. Before we get into that, just to say that I don't. I, I liked uh, some of the uh, kind of the the swerving away from the kind of fan service that derailed a lot of Rogue One. In mm. Rogue One, they just like bump into Doctor Eversavan and be like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, look at this guy." Um, like in this one, they just like drop names in every now and then that you're like, oh, "Okay." And they yeah. don't really make a huge point of it. Plus, they're name checking some pretty deep cuts from the expanded universe, like uh, the planet of Felucia, which is uh, uh, in the old books inhabited by a weird race of cat people. Which I'm wondering where uh, that's where uh, Michael K. Williams's character would have been from. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's lots of little bits like that. One of the jokes I really, really liked and that really worked for me also was when I think it's during the Kessel run maybe when they're escaping and the and Han is asking Woody Harrelson's character if they have any tie fighters chasing them and he uses like a load of aphorisms where he says they're like a scribble on a flingle's back or whatever <laughs> and he's like I don't know what that means <laughs> and then he asks this is another thing he says are they are they on us or not he's like yes they they are behind us I thought that was really funny because it's a, it's a nice acknowledgement that like 
yeah, if you're a kid from Corellia, chances are you haven't seen a lot of these animals, so uh, all these aphorisms wouldn't make sense to you. And it also seemed like, I don't know if it was a deliberate, deliberate reference, but there's an infamous line cut from the original screenplay of Star Wars, where Obi-Wan Kenobi says something like, it's like walkers, water off a duck's back, and Luke goes, what's a duck? <laughs> which, which was... <laughs> which was rightfully cooked. It's a very silly, distracting thing, but it kind of it's it's operating on a similar level. Which is like, yeah, if you're a kid who's lived on one planet all your own life in a fairly sheltered existence, well, you know, kind of isolated existence, chances are you you don't know what like all of these animals are. Mm. Um, so I really enjoyed that joke. Um, one of my favourite jokes, which I didn't actually realise it until way after, which is when. Han and Lando are, are on the beach looking at the falcon that's been mm-hmm. uh, ripped apart and uh, Lando says, I hate you, and Han Solo mm-hmm. says, I know, which yeah, is something that, that didn't register because they kind of they kind of just drop it there. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, I liked that because in Rogue One, if they'd have said that, it would have, like, zoomed in and then it just looked straight down the lens and winked because uh, it was yeah. pretty heavy-handed. It yanks you right out of the movie, whereas... Thankfully, a lot of the the fan service in this didn't do it for me. So I, I think supposedly we probably should get into the big, well, kind of a twist, really, I guess, but one that's not mm. going to make a lot of sense to ninety nine percent of the people who see it. Yeah, it certainly didn't make sense to me because uh, I don't watch Rebels. Yeah, so or I the Clone Wars, I, or read the comics. Yeah, so I I wasn't quite aware that. Darth Maul is alive and he has robot legs and he is apparently Kira's boss, uh, as as shown by his appearance in a hologram. Um yeah. which once I once I read up afterwards and thought, oh, okay, this is a thing that is fairly well established, I was less annoyed by it than I was in the theatre. Mm-hmm. Purely because when I saw it in the theatre, I was like, it seemed I, I was always under the assumption that when people would talk about Darth Maul surviving, it was like some bullshit fan theory thing. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I can't believe they'd like that felt like such a fan service thing of like vindicating like a a, a a a theory that had been out in out in the world for so long. But then seeing like, oh no, this is something that has literally hours of screen time dedicated to exploring it. I thought, okay, it still feels weird dropping it in this movie, yeah, <laughs> uh, as kind of just like a, a throwaway plot point. But at least it is, I guess, backed up by the ancillary storytelling. Yeah. So so I'm I'm gonna fill the people in who don't know with what happens to Darth Maul um, mm. after the Phantom Menace. Now, bear in mind that Darth Maul is not a good character. He looked no. cool, and that bit in yep. the trailer looked cool, but then like a lot of like someone else we've recently talked about who looked cool, he fell down a hole in slapstick <laughs> fashion. Um, and that's the end of it. Like, I didn't know he was alive until he turned up in Rebels. And then mm. I was like, huh? And then went back. Apparently he's in the Clone Wars cartoons, which I've not seen all of. I've seen some of, and they're quite bad at the start and they kind of get a bit better towards the end but yeah he he survives being chopped in half lives in a junkyard um and then is rehabilitated on his home planet using magic and then obviously the emperor finds out and tries to kill him and kind of does for him like and you know kind of puts him out of commission because he he does it he's got a new apprentice he's got anakin skywalker he doesn't need another kind of sith apprentice underneath him so he's just trying to get rid of him then this is the interesting part. He then becomes the leader of a criminal cartel. He kind of goes rogue mm-hmm. and disavows the force, right? He becomes the leader of a, a criminal cartel called the Shadow Collective, 
which is right. like the Jab- Jabba the Hutt's guys and like mm-hmm. the Pike family. And there's all these other like criminal elements that join in with him. And he's basically just like, uh, you know, out for himself. Then the Emperor kills all that and that's it. And then that's kind of where we leave it. Then weirdly in Rebels, Darth Maul is now just called Maul. He is he is completely kind of disavowed that. And they find him on, much like Luke Skywalker in Force Awakens, he is on a Sith temple kind of hanging out. And in Rebels, he is like a completely different character who is actually interesting. Um, and he has actually a pretty good arc where he is kind of like this rogue element who you don't really know whose side he's on, but he's clearly working for the dark side and you kind of understand what he's after as the story goes on, which culminates in his final showdown on Tatooine with Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is in the episode uh, from season three of Rebels called Twin Sons, one of the best lightsaber fights in all of Star Wars because it is driven by emotion. It uh, deepens what we know about the characters. uh, It furthers the plot on an interesting way and it, it lasts literally 10 seconds. Um, and it's really good. You can watch just just that fight, but I'd actually watch all of that season of Rebels. It's actually pretty good. Um, and that is a very interesting end to that character arc. Weirdly, the Darth Maul that we see in Han Solo kind of falls much later in that. So he seems to be the head of another crime syndicate. <laughs> um, so maybe he kind of... Because that's like 20 years before this Han Solo movie. So whether they're, yeah. they're going to retcon it, or whether, like you know, he he, he his first startup was <laughs> unsuccessful, <laughs> and now he's gone for another one. He's rebranded as the Crimson Dawn, and I mean they're clearly setting him up as an antagonist for either a Han Solo sequel or the Kenobi sequel that's coming up, which would be a shame because the Kenobi Maul stuff in Rebels is a very fitting end to those two characters and their relationship, and it's actually kind of got some emotional depth to it as well. So to yeah. then just replay it in a film, I don't know, that seems a bit weird. Um, so it was very surprising. So many people in the cinema were like, what the fuck? I kind of yeah. recognise that guy, but isn't he dead? Um, mm. It seemed like a very odd choice, but I have to say, I'd much rather it be that and have a lot of people talking about it and trying to weirdly figure it out than it be Jabba the Hutt or Boba Fett. Which yeah, would have just yeah. been tired, and and I mean that that they were the two most obvious things that sh- that could easily have been crowbarred into into uh, the Han Solo movie, and I'm very very pleased they weren't. Yeah, and and Jabba is only kind of like alluded to because that's the job they're going. They're presumably that's the job they're going off to do at the end because Woody Harrelson's character says like you know there's a job, you know, big money on Tatooine or whatever, and mm-hmm. think okay, yeah, so that he's going to go off to work for Jabba and then presumably the next movie because uh, Aaron Reich is signed up for three Star uh, Han Solo movies. They will presumably like that will detail the deal that goes wrong that gets Han into a bunch of trouble. Um, but yeah, the fact that they don't include Jabba, it's just kind of alluded to that feels about right. Um, also in terms of like, like you said earlier about, how the movie kind of peters out and doesn't have a climax. I agree in that, you know, the rising action of the movie is basically all done by the second act and then it's all kind of like denouement. But mm. one of the things I liked about the movie, um, which was fitting for a, a Han Solo movie, was that it was fairly low stakes. Like, right. it wasn't... 
about him getting drawn into the border conflict, except in a very kind of abstract way in terms of like they're stealing this fuel from Kessel, which they're initially meant to be using to kind of cover their debt with Crimson Dawn and they end up being given to the, you know, this nascent rebel alliance group. Um, But other than that, it's mainly just about him going off on these kind of series of, of, of adventures and the, the mishaps that befall him, which feels right for, for Han, who in every previous conception of the character is always like a character who is trying to stay out of history's way. He's mm. just trying to get ahead himself. He's just trying to make a bit of money, you know, through smuggling, he's chasing adventure. And that kind of feels right for this whole story. He he ends up doing something that helps a lot of people because he provides this starship fuel, which is going to, you know, give a boost to, to uh, Enfys Nest and her, her team. Incidentally, isn't it weird that the, one of the early trends of blockbusters this year is poorly realized twists in which characters revealed to be female because they mm-hmm. previously had a voice a voice um uh, modulator on um that was weird uh but although i did think that emphasis ness was going to turn out to be kira initially so i'm kind of glad they didn't go that way but yeah as soon as they started talking it's like oh i guess that character is a, a woman <laughs> because otherwise why would their voice be so heavily modulated um but like I did like the fact that its its stakes and its focus was fairly small and that its finale was not that satisfying for me, at least wasn't just like big space battle for the fourth time in a row. Mm. Yeah, I mean that that's uh you know, something that is a relief that we're not we didn't see that all that stuff retreaded. Yeah. But yeah, it was I mean, how is this done at the box office? I gather from a couple of reports it's done pretty badly, which is okay if your film costs 150 million, but mm. we're having to reshoot it in nearly its entirety. That probably doubled the the budget well into the 200 million mark. Yeah, so the movie opened to about 84 million over three days because it's a four day weekend. It's gonna, or you know, it's it's a holiday weekend. It's gonna probably make about a hundred million over the four days, which, like you say, is not nothing to sniff at. But when your movie ends up costing two, three hundred million, and you need to make probably seven, eight, nine hundred million dollars worldwide to eke out a profit. It's not great. Whereas if this movie had cost 150 million and we were looking at it as like, you know, when the first Captain America movie came out, that was a movie that didn't do huge numbers, but did kind of okay and established, you know, a character, a character who people knew from, you know, previous media, but was being played by a a new actor and you were establishing kind of like a new world and continuity for the cost that it, you know, for the amount that it cost, that was fine. But Mm -hmm. because we're coming off of Force Awakens, one of the biggest movies of all time, uh, Rogue One, which made over a billion dollars worldwide, and same for The Last Jedi, all these like very, very big successful movies, Han Solo doing you know, only a hundred million over four days uh, looks very bad in comparison. And also, and you know, in terms of the way the movie was handled, you, you talked earlier about the sense of like star Wars movies, not feeling special anymore. I think mm-hmm. releasing this in the summer rather than in 
at Christmas as the previous three movies had been released and also releasing it in such close proximity to The Last Jedi, I think really added to that sense that it wasn't an event. It wasn't special anymore because, you know, we just had a Star Wars movie and, Mm. you know, that, that also, that kind of made it then feel like, say like, like those mid tier Marvel movies that come out and do okay. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I think uh, it it says a lot that, so I went to see it with my kind of nerd friends and we love Star Wars. We kind of talk about it a lot. We, you know, play Star Wars board games. We've been to see all the new Star Wars movies together on open night. And on the way out, everyone was kind of like, yeah, cool. Okay, fine. That was the general reaction. But one thing that we all kind of, someone said it, but we all kind of just agreed was like, I'm really glad there's like a year and a half until the next one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It feels like, it just feels like too much. And I, I think it's Star Wars, so they can saturate the market as much as they want and people will still go for it to to varying degrees that, you know, will not be too far off successful. But I, personally, I feel like, you know, had they held this over till Christmas, they might have had a bit more time to sort it out. They might not have wanted a bit more time. They might, wanted, might have wanted to... Um, you know, get it out for reasons unknown. I don't know whether they're, I heard someone speculating as to whether, you know, they're trying to get into a position where they can get two Star Wars movies out a year. Yeah. And, you know, getting people used to the fact that there's going to be one in the summer is something they wanted to do, but I don't know. I don't know whether that seems right, but I, I'm I'm just, I, I feel like I, I need a bit of a break, especially seeing as before the next Star Wars movie comes out, we'll have Star Wars Resistance, the new animated show from Dave Filoni who did Rebels, which is going to be kind of anime inspired, which is, mm. you know, something to look forward to because, you know, his stuff's generally quite good. And the aforementioned John Favreau's live action show uh, will drop next year. Mm. Um, and you're gonna have Disney. comics and books and yeah yeah all this stuff happening I, yeah and i mean a lot of that seems optional and yeah you can kind of dip it out but in in terms of like going to see a movie and it being an event i'm really glad we've got a bit of a break mm. yeah because they also there was talk at one point of releasing episode nine in the summer as well wasn't it and then they push that back because when, when they when they shit can Trevorrow yeah the first, the first announcement was was Abram saying we'll push it back and everyone thought that Ron Howard would do it but they said no we're sticking to the May date mm. so I don't know whether it, I think I don't know could it have been Avatar was going to come out this Christmas um possibly not or whether they wanted to go up against that or whether they clashed with something else that Disney had out I'm not sure yeah, I think it probably would have done. It probably would have done fine, even if it is competing against something. You know, we saw with Jumanji last Christmas that you can have a multiple big blockbuster movies coming out over the Christmas break, and people will go and see them because it's like everyone's got a bunch of free time. Mm. And even if it ends up being like everyone's second or third choice, they'll still get around to it. Um, whereas releasing it in the summer, especially sandwiched between two huge movies that Disney are also putting out because, you know, Infinity Wars in its third weekend, fourth weekend. Yeah. And Incredibles 2 comes out in two or three weeks' time. Like, it seems... And it's coming on the heels of Deadpool and then in a 
like two weeks time you've got oceans eight which probably isn't going to be like of the scale of some of the others but it's probably still going to do pretty well you know it it feels like releasing it over christmas in the more relaxed atmosphere of people just being like hey let's just go watch movies and everything doing well mm-hmm. seems like it would have made more sense than just chucking out into summer like any old blockbuster which yeah. i think again gets to the the sense that you are making a Star Wars movie seem less than, even though I think it's probably like, for me, it's about on a par with Rogue One, but I've obviously only seen it once, so I can't really compare the two. But like, it's it doesn't feel like a movie that would have been harmed by coming out at what is now considered to be Star Wars time. You know, Christmas is when a Star Wars movie comes out, and that obviously... Uh, as a, as an English person, that's always been the case because Star Wars always used to be air on Christmas uh, on mm. like ITV. So there's always that sense to me. Star Wars and Christmas are always kind of like synonymous with each other, anyway. Which is weird considering they are the whole series is such a big part of the creation of the summer blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree, and I think if you if you lock yourself into that, then you you basically make that your own. Like, mm. you know, going back 10 years, for like kind of 15 years now, it was Lord of the Rings was the... Yeah. Was the was the, the winner thing, is that you kind of did it in in December, and it was something to look forward to that year. And I think that, you know, they, they probably could have done that. Why they held a solo to a May date, given the problems they had with it, I'm not sure. Maybe um, they were afraid that the optics of it already being kind of a chaotic production and then them saying, oh, we're pushing it back a year, they would have thought that people would have, like, you know, made a, a bunch of fuss about it. But, like, an extra seven months to work on it, maybe kind of, like, help with the editing, couldn't have couldn't have hurt. Yeah. Know? Yeah, and I, I do know that when J.J. Abrams agreed to take on Force Awakens, they were already booked into a release date and he said I'll do it but you've got to give me another because originally they were going to do Michael Arndt scripts mm, his script yeah. the guy who wrote Toy Story 3 yeah. um, uh, and he said well you know if, if we're going to do it I'm not going to do this script I'd like to have another run at it and if we're going to do that we're going to need more time mm. um, and yeah whether or not they were allowed to do that with this one I'm not sure but I, I do think it needs Lucasfilm need to think about what they're doing because whether or not putting a film out every year is going to result in more kind of results like this. Uh, 84 million was about 20 or 30 million below the lowest kind of estimate they were going for. I think the conservative estimate being like 110, 115 coming in at 80, whether you're Disney or not, and you've got all the money in the world that has to be disappointing. Yeah, and it it has to you know it's it has to play against their instincts as like a big corporation who make movies you know that are generally of a pretty good quality, but the the desire is to kind of take a property like Star Wars or like Marvel and get as much squeeze as much money out of it as you can, mm. and you know being told that maybe you need to hold off and make fewer movies is not really in their game plan. But, you know, I think the problem they also have is, like, unlike Marvel, which does have, what, 60, 70 years' worth of stories and characters that you can pull upon and has this, like, real dense mythology that has been worked over in thousands and thousands of comics, like, 
Star Wars has a lot of storytelling, most of which has now been chucked in the bin because yeah. they they scrapped all the old continuity. But you can pick and choose from it and like choose the stuff that you want to continue with, which they have done so far. But there aren't that many like big characters that you could build a story around. And mm. the other problem with it originating from film as a medium is that a lot of those characters are associated with actors who played them already. And yeah. I think one of the problems that Solo has in terms of like really breaking through to a big audience is that there, for most people, there isn't anyone playing who has played Han Solo other than Harrison Ford. And you're expecting people to start with a character, who, with an actor who, unless you know you're a cinephile and you've really been paying attention to art house cinema over the last 10 years, or you happen to watch Beautiful Creatures, that YA gothic, Southern Gothic movie that came out five years ago, you don't know who Alden Ehrenreich is. And mm. like you and I were super excited when he was cast because we really loved him in Tetro and Hail Caesar and whatnot. But mm. for most people, he's like a new guy who's stepping into this iconic role. And I don't think that that in and of itself is enough. And I think this is all indicative of problems they'll have if they want to try and spin off and do stories about other characters and what what you know was in some ways the advantage of Rogue One which was you were telling a story that people sort of know because they remember it as kind of a plot detail from the earlier movies but you're doing it with entirely new characters and you don't have that expectation to kind of live up to mm, yeah yeah no I, I think I, I do wonder whether or not it's the right strategy just to keep going where the actual end point is we are going to have a film that comes out next year, a fir the first of the Star Wars movies, the big main kind of story, the episodes one to nine, where there'll be none of the original characters left in it, oh, yeah. apart from your kind of ancillary characters, because they're not going to, they've not got any material of, of um, Carrie Fisher and her family, so they're not going to like CGI her. Yeah. Um, and Han and Luke are dead. So, you know, we are going to have a film led by the new generation. This this kind of the last two films have been about the slow kind of passing of the torch to this new generation. But the original plan was that Carrie Fisher would still very much be with us and would lead the last part of that. Hmm. How that goes down is probably going to be the litmus test for any new trilogies. There's two new trilogies planned of Star Wars movies, one by the Game of Thrones yeah. guys and one by Ryan Johnson. And they're all going to have to involve new characters and... You know, I think if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, the excitement for me is the new places it can go. Yes, I do like seeing some of the old stuff, but I'm more excited by the idea of seeing what, you know, Finn, Ray, Rose and, and Poe are up to in episode nine without being burdened by 40 years of, oh, look, it's the guy who gets his hand cut off in, in the cantina mm. uh, type stuff. It, it it feels quite kind of cloying in places. And I, I, I really feel like they need to kind of break free from it sooner rather than later. And I think The Last Jedi, the one of the reasons I love it so much is that that is its central premise, mm. that you have to let the past die, kill it if you have to, and then spends two hours dismantling all the things you held sacred 
um and you know you cry into your, your luke skywalker pillowcase <laughs> um and you know you don't know what to do with yourself and i'm really pleased it did that and it's taken us to an exciting place and i'm much more excited by the fact that i don't know what's going to happen in episode nine or even who's going to be left in it um and you know where it's going to go but then you know that is tempered by the fact that we've got oh there's a boba fett movie well there's a the obi-wan kenobi movie and Oh, there might be the Bounty Hunters movie. There'll be sequels to the Han Solo movie, Han and Lando. There might be a Lando spin-off. It's just like, I mean, come on, guys. Like, let's just get to the new part and, and, and try and make that as good as we can rather than wallowing in this. Because I feel like the Fett and Kenobi movies are at the bottom of a barrel already, given what we know and where those characters are and what they're doing. Like, Kenobi, what, I mean, what's that going to be about? Like solving border disputes with sand people like mm-hmm. it's just the idea that when we meet obi-wan kenobi you, you you know he's a kind of a, a guy who's been in hiding for all these years the idea that he's off having adventures seems to kind of negate the idea of being in hiding mm. i do wonder if you know obviously disney probably won't let this happen unless they have a, a, a string of movies that just completely fail and they have to just kind of like put the whole thing on freeze but if maybe the la- the natural state of Star Wars is what it was under the Lucas era, which is that you put out a few films every 10, 15 years or whatever, and then the movies go dormant and then the storytelling continues in every other form of media. Mm. Because that seems to work in terms of allowing people to kind of like build up excitement, you know, the idea that absence make the, makes the heart grow fonder. You know, that maybe that is the best thing for Star Wars because the prequels all did very well, even though people by and large didn't like them. But because, you know, it was a new Star Wars movie every three years, it had been such a long time since the old ones came along. And Force Awakens and Last Jedi did huge business. Rogue One also did huge business, I think, because there was novelty to a Star Wars story that didn't connect to the main plot line. Uh, mm-hmm. Except, you know, in terms of filling in the blanks, uh, I, I wonder if what the 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 relative lack of success of of solo, and, you know, you shouldn't lose track of the fact that it's still doing, it's still by most film standards doing well. It's mm-hmm. just not doing as well as they would like and that they need it to. If that maybe indicates that what you need to do with Star Wars is you tell a bunch of stories over a short period of time and then you kind of like put it on ice for 10 years and then you come back with new stuff. But then in the intermediate times, you just say, okay, we're going to put out a bunch of new stories in in TV and comics and books and stuff because that seems to be where telling all of those smaller stories works better. Like maybe Alden Ehrenreich will voice the character of Han Solo in a bunch of in like an animated series that runs for 10 seasons or whatever. Like maybe that's, mm. that's the, the best place for this take on the character. If the, the movies don't prove sustainable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That could well be it. Uh, so we end this episode of the show as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed. And we think that you, the listeners will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got for this, us this week? Uh, it's something that we've uh, already mentioned. Uh, it is uh, Tetro, the mm. uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie, which uh, introduced me to Old Nirenreich, um and uh, a film that um, I think it was 
kind of came out just as I started writing a blog. Oh, imagine that, those days where yeah. I did that. Um, and, yeah, just the idea that... That I think that was my film of the year that year. When I think it was two thousand and nine or ten, maybe something. Yeah, like. yeah. I think it came um, out in America in two thousand nine. Maybe it came out in the UK in ten. But it's around about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it was a film in which you know, kind of Francis Ford Coppola has made some of the best American movies uh, of all time. Um, arguably, had the greatest run of uh, four movies in a row with Conversation, Godfather One, Two, and then Apocalypse Now. Um, and oh, especially in kind of modern memory. Um, and then he kind of didn't do a great deal of good films. He's done some interesting films, done some bad films, uh, and then didn't seem to do a lot uh, for many years, apart from Mate Wine. Um, but then he made this kind of quite sh- strange, I guess, kind of intimate, um, but yet expansive geographically uh, story of uh, about of Tetro, this guy played by Vincent Gallo, who's, is it his younger brother, Old Nerenreich plays, I seem to remember? Yes. Who is looking for him in Argentina and now has a kind of, the film has extra residence to me because I've been to a lot of those places in Argentina <laughs> they go to and those landscapes, those kind of desolate, um, kind of like desert landscapes of uh, Patagonia are... Um, every bit is kind of visually striking in real life as they are on film. And that's a really good movie. And uh, Old Nolan Reich has a lot on his shoulders to, to, to play that. He's very young in the movie. He must be about 17, 18. Um, and he is ostensibly the lead. He's not the titular character, but he is pretty much in every scene. Um, and he's really good in it. And I saw him and I kind of thought, oh, I'd like to see what he does next. And then kind of didn't really see him again until uh, Hail Caesar, uh, which he is very funny in, mm. obviously. Um, and then here he is as Han Solo. It's quite the ascent for a, for a, for a young actor, but he is uh, excellent in that film. Vincent Gallo is nowhere near as unsuffer- insufferable as he is <laughs> uh, in real life or his other films. Uh, so, yes, I would recommend Tetra. I think it's on Netflix in both America and England. Uh, and Europe, uh, so if you have the means, check it out because it, it is very good. Beautiful black and white cinematography. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, I have a recommendation that has nothing to do with Solo, but is a movie that I watched for the first time very recently, having been meaning to watch it for a long time because people had told me it was good and I was skeptical because I remember this movie coming out and doing very poorly and assuming it was bad, but I found it to be an absolute delight. It is 2001's Josie and the Pussycats which is an adaptation of the Archie, the characters from the Archie comic strips, more recently revived and given new renewed relevancy by Riverdale, uh, starring Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid, Rosario Dawson, and then uh, Parker Posey and Alan Cumming as the villains. It's basically a very funny, witty satire of pop music of the early 2000s and of kind of corporate synergy. There's a very funny gag in the movie background gag which is where pretty much every scene is just overloaded with product placement from companies that didn't pay the movie anything (laughs) they just decided they were gonna make fun of the corporate saturation of early 2000 culture by having like bathrooms with target symbols on the doors and things like that for no reason and it's just a very funny very charming movie it's got great songs some of which written by adam schlesinger who would uh who had previously written obviously the catchiest fake song in history, That Thing You Do, and would mm-hmm. later go on to write some of the best fake songs in history on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. And, uh, it's just it's just a really fun, bubbly, delightful comedy, which I wish I'd seen sooner because I really feel as if uh, it's a movie I would have uh, just loved to watch like any time I was 
feeling down over the last like 15 years because it is just such a a likable movie and that whole cast is really good and and really funny and and certainly anyone who grew up when the Backstreet Boys are at their peak will really enjoy the pitch perfect satire of that kind of 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 music and music video aesthetic through the boy band du jour who are played by, amongst other people, Donald Faison and Seth Green, uh, mm-hmm. who very briefly show up and very quickly exit the movie, um, but uh, are very funny when they're briefly in it. And yeah, it's just a really delightful, surprising movie, uh, which I think more people should check out and see. It is it is really, really fun. Mm, cool. I love, I love those uh, films so that you don't expect to be good. And then someone says, oh, it's actually good, despite everything you think about it being... Mm. Uh, suggesting to the contrary and then you give it a chance and you're like very surprised by it and you've got this kind of secret little thing going i do like that yeah it's very much the early 2000s equivalent of a lord and miller movie like that. <laughs> yeah. i tied it in in the end uh yeah, yeah of, of, a, movie that, a movie that shouldn't work and shouldn't be as smart and well realized as it is mm. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Overcast, all the usual places. Leave us a review and uh, rate us and recommend us to your friend. It's the easiest way for us to uh, to grow our audience. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.